goodest of good days, cats and kittens, and a hail and hearty welcome back to Discontent Provider, the podcast that has been away for far too long. What poor apology of mine can make up for the torture and agony you doubtless endured in the absence of our wise counsel last week? Well, <laughs> clearly almost none. Although perhaps were Arkham and I to tear out our own hearts and scrawl the word sorry upon the canal tunnel that overlooks our happy place, it would be a start at least. But oh, as a loyal listener to a podcast or two myself, I'm painfully aware that even that would scarcely be adequate recompense. Instead, I'll simply say that a spot of dental treatment left my speech severely impaired, and had I attempted anything, it would have been a barely comprehensible jumble of incoherent mumbling, followed by a song that would be all but unlistenable, an aural train crash, if you will. And let's face it, that's not the sort of thing for which you tune into us, is it? Is it? Possibly uh, that will go some way to uh, ameliorating the agonies of the betrayal and abandonment you will have suffered, but then again, maybe you'll still be a mite shirty at having been left bereft in an abyss of silence, and saying something like, well, why didn't you have a couple of get-ahead episodes lined up, Foxy? That's what professional podcasters do, after all. It's a fair point, I suppose, but in our defence, I might counter by saying that neither the world's greatest lurcher here or myself are overburdened with professionalism, and the fact that we don't rather tactlessly bring up the subjects of Patreon accounts, online recruitment platforms, or gourmet meal home delivery services with monotonous regularity really should have tipped you off to that, so shut the fuck up and stop moaning. There are, after all, worse things than missing a podcast episode, are there not? One only has to consider the plight of our beloved and strangely fingered sovereign, his Britannic Majesty Charles III, to realise that. Yes, podcast pals, you too could have a mysterious cancer. And if you did, would you have the preternatural courage needed to allow your army of flunkies and PR wonks to issue vague statements to the public about it? Even though you'd run the risk of the unwashed masses thinking of your rectum or your wrinkly old balls? Because let's face it, those are what people are thinking of in the uh, absence of specifics, ain't they? Indeed, what other conclusion can the uninformed punter uh, leap to? Uh, other than uh, that the monarch's condition has to be related to some part of the human or perchance reptilian form that isn't generally discussed over the petty fours in polite society. Ah, there's nothing quite so becoming and ridiculous as the modesty and diffidence of the British upper classes, eh what? While we, mere plebs that we are, can rejoice in the spiritual freedom we have to writhe and scream shamelessly with agony in a public hospital ward with a tube up our asses, our betters are compelled to retain a stiff upper-lipped discretion about such matters, lest society crumble to its foundations at the discovery that those of high birth and gargantuan fortune are not inherently immune to anal cysts or similar human frailties and indignity. During her glorious 350-year reign, the King's Mater, Queen Elizabeth II, was never even suspected of possessing an anus, save by the authors of some particularly niche erotic fanfiction, but now KC3's Kyber is very much front and centre in the minds of all those that give his condition more than a moment's thought. How the royals suffer, cats and kittens. You wouldn't chuckle. You really wouldn't. 
Apparently, many are giving Charles's cancer diagnosis a good deal of thought, though, particularly those palace-haunting ghouls whose very existence, it would seem, depends upon fermenting a positively feudal sense of the significance and moment of every aspect of royal life. This gruesome cadre of gossips have been uh, unanimous in pointing out just how simply spiffing, marvellous and utterly top drawer it is that the King has at last got people thinking about and even discussing out loud cancer. It will, we are told, clear away the unsavoury and unhelpful miasma of stigma and bafflement that has clouded our view of the disease for lo these many years. All well and good, I dare say, and as much as one can expect from those who discovered a while back that uh, informing us which designer was responsible for whatever formless beige outfit Soapy Wessex wore to Ascot was a dash sight easier than real journalism. But uh, to those more a touch in tune with a reality that isn't made up of charity galas and flaccid handshakes, such observations are a touch on the puzzling, if not outright absurd side. There is no stigma about cancer these days, is there? I mean to say, while nobody would call themselves a fan of the thing, or ardently hope to find a worrying lump whenever they hop into the shower, I'm fairly sure that most of the world has moved on from the notion that it's something contagious, or anything to be ashamed of, you know, like syphilis or leprosy. And as far as cancer awareness goes, I'd suggest that the number of commercials for cancer charities that tell us that 15 out of every one person will develop a cancer if they haven't got one right now, come to think of it, would make it unlikely that anyone who has ever even glanced at any kind of screen hasn't got, at the very, very least, the hazy knowledge that cancer is a thing and is, on the whole, a bit of a bummer. So much for that, then. I'm neither going to feign concern for the fate of anyone who has indulged in decades of blood sports, but nor suggest uh, everybody begin sticking pins into jug-eared effigies or uttering incantations to the old dark gods in the hope of making things worse. And should anyone find this lack of active sympathy or discretion tasteless, I'll simply shrug off the criticism. I look frightfully good when I shrug, you know. It's practically what I was born to do, and point out that that's how we do these days. And if you don't believe me, take a deco at this week's Prime Minister's Question Time. You'll recall that Mr Sunak concluded a list of occasions upon which Keir Starmer's position on an issue has been less than 100% consistent or even coherent with a snide little sally regarding the leader of the opposition's insufficiently transphobic uh, stance on the issue of gender identity. Starmer was quick to make capital out of this by pointing out the questionable taste of making a trans-related jibe in the near vicinity of the mother of the murdered Brianna Jai. Now, I'm not going to litigate the legitimacy of that particular aspect of the case as such. Miss Jai herself seems reluctant to turn it into a cause celebre, as I understand it, so it hardly behooves a disgruntled folky and a dog on a podcast to disrespect her wishes. Suffice it to say that there may or may not have been a performative aspect to Starmer's outrage, just as there might well be to the PM's, were Sir Keir to make a comment not wholly supportive of an increased defence budget within earshot of an injured war veteran. The state of political discourse is, alas, what it is, and I rather fancy that we've already lamented that on Discontent Provider, along with a characteristically toe-tapping song, if I remember rightly. So calling out uh, cheap point scoring by either side is hardly what the kids would call a hot take at this point. 
Instead, I'd like to take issue with claims made by our elfin Prime Minister and his apologists that his remark was not a jibe or a joke at the expense of trans people, but was intended to underscore the point that Sakir is undecided upon even the most basic and fundamental issues. While it would be hard to deny that there is any veracity in that claim, and that the only real debate to be had is how much of it is attributable to personal deficiencies or a weakness of character, and how much is simply down to political expediency, the very fact that he included the issue of trans identity and the manner in which he did so was, I feel, all kinds of shitty. Why do it at all must surely be the first question. He had, after all, listed several other examples of the gallant knight's reversals of thought and policy, so what was gained by lugging in a vulnerable and still very much marginalised community? Some have suggested that his intention was to highlight the reluctance of the Labour leader to address matters relating to sex and gender, or sex versus gender, in a reasoned and intelligent fashion. And if anything, Sunak's smug allusion to the topic was a light-hearted appeal for a genuine and serious debate on the subject. It's rarely wise to speak in absolutes, podcast pals. After all, life is a far more finely nuanced and delicately shaded picture than even the most astute of us can fully comprehend at any given moment. But I'm prepared to state catafuckingorically that I view this as pure, undiluted, premium-strength codswallop. Had that been Richie's intention, why was it accompanied by a particularly grisly smirk and the sort of spike-tinged giggle that one would expect from the swatty kid out of the Beano while grassing up the Bash Street kids to the teacher. The fact that it was suggests to me that another uh, defence so readily presented by his acolyte, that the PM misspoke, is also palpably untrue. I don't think that he spoke in the heat of the moment, or didn't think. The nasty little chortle of self-congratulation belies any such assertion far more effectively than any argument. You only have to watch him to know that not only did he think he was being terribly witty and clever, but also that he knew exactly what he was doing. What then was he doing? Well, in my view, he was simply playing to the gallery. Like when a pantomime villain or some hack of a jobbing actor casts a furtive glance and a knowing smile towards the cheap seat, as though to ask the audience... See what I did there? I said, I said big jugs, but you know I was talking about boobies, don't you? It was a despicable spot of mugging to the faithful to remind them that Starmer and the left generally are into all that weird woke stuff and we're not. And thus a callous dismissal of the fears, of the problems, of the very lives of anyone who doesn't fit neatly into any of our long ingrained social norms. What a fuckstump. So, while I wouldn't suggest that the leader of Her Majesty's government was actually implying that a bereaved mother can sod off and shove her dead freak child up her ass, I would say that Sunak does owe Ms Jai an apology, but not just her, or even the trans community at large. Rather, he owes an apology to anyone who has ever attracted the contempt and the indifference of him and his utterly repulsive ilk by being anything but a rich, powerful, heterosexual, fully able, tax-dodging shitfucker, preferably a male one at that. In fact, the Sorloff Slitherer owes pretty much everybody an apology, but I fear that none will be forthcoming. And speaking of things that merit regret and contrition, it's about time for the song at the end, is it not? It's been simply smashing to be back with you after our enforced hiatus, cats and kittens, and we'll see you next week. 
Until then, do, if you care to, share links to this squalid little corner of the cyber sewer on your social media profiles. And if you want to have your say on anything discontent provider affiliated, why not drop an electronic letter into our inbox? You can find it at discontentprovider at gmx.co.uk. Alternatively, we're still on the Twitter at Foxy and Arkham. That about does it for now, however, so cheerio. The sofa-coral crankers, they can't take a joke. They're too PC to have fun. They lost the gift of laughter since they went all woke to mealy mouth to mock anyone. Laughter's the best medicine, so lighten up and get on board. By the time that we are done, it'll be the only one that you can afford. We British love a giggle, it's a cultural thing. I guess that that's what pisses them off. A foreigner, a cripple, or a chap in a frock is always gonna be good for a laugh. Stand out, you can bet you're gonna get banter from the happily homogenized mob. But don't you dare to contemplate a joke about cancer in the king's anointed knob. We all enjoy a chuckle, but don't push it too far. Don't you dare smoke at your betters. The wealthy and the powerful, but leave them alone. Or risk a stern solicitor's letter. There's nothing wrong with fun, but when all's said and done, you better remember your place. Or pretty soon you'll find that a super injunction can quickly wipe the smile off your face. At its best, humour is a one-way street We'll dish it out, but it ain't something we're gonna weed Because we're only laughing when the joke is firmly on you